know, everybody has different goals, different versions of what they deem as success. I mean, there's just a lot to, to think through in that regard. And I think sometimes we, on a larger level as society, really just look at the overall numbers, the external versions of what success is, instead of thinking more that everybody is on their own individual journey. What might be successful for me and in my brain of what success is could be totally different from whomever is listening to this right now. Lord knows this is a message that is so tired at this point, but it's very easy now to compare ourselves to everyone else because we have such easy access to compare ourselves to everyone else at this point. And it is just so critical that while it's fine to consume that content, that you're also keeping in mind that you are on your own journey and you need to measure yourself against you from last year or you from last month, not what XYZ person over here is doing because you don't know their full story. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Aaron Lowry wants you to know that words have power, especially when it comes to your money. Saving and investing are not the same thing. For example, if someone is saving for retirement, they might not even be aware that they're actually investing their money. Very few people put their retirement money in a savings account. It's much more likely that you have your retirement money invested in an index fund or some kind of portfolio of stocks and bonds that are subject to risk and growth. But if we keep using the word save when we talk about retirement, we miss the opportunity to learn about our investments. If we said invest for retirement, you might be triggered to ask, what's my money invested in? You might be thinking, Bo, everyone knows the difference between saving and investing, and people know where their retirement money is invested. Unfortunately, that's just not true. I read yesterday that 40% of Canadians keep their TFSA contributions in a simple savings account. So why are Canadians doing this? Well, it's in the name. TFSA stands for Tax-Free Savings Account. The Canadian government called it a savings account. But it's not a savings account. It's a tax shelter. Where the RRSP, or Registered Retirement Savings Plan, was created to save you taxes now, you, you know, either get a tax refund or you save the taxes automatically off of your paycheck. Either way, you don't pay tax now, you pay tax later when you withdraw the money in retirement. On the other hand, the TFSA allows you to take after-tax money, the money that you already pay tax on, and then protect it from ever being taxed again in the future. So the TFSA isn't for savings because... Savings doesn't really grow very much, if at all. If you're lucky, you get 1% per year. And if you do get that 1%, you can afford to pay taxes on that. You probably have other things that have higher growth where the taxes are higher. So what you want in your TFSA is your highest growth investments. If you have $10,000 in Canadian bank stocks, for example, and you say they're part of your TFSA, you have the contribution room, and then they grow by 10% this year, You don't pay any tax on that 10%. Not this year or any year after that. Every year they might grow by 10%, 5%, 20%. You don't have to pay tax on that. The 10,000 could grow to 100,000 and you don't pay any tax because it was designated as under your TFSA. So should this program created to shelter your investment growth from future taxes be called a tax-free savings account? Absolutely not. It's a terrible name and it's confusing Canadians. So words have power. Like the words broke and poor are not the same thing. This is something that Erin and I discuss in the episode as she has now written two books. The first one is called Broke Millennial and the most recent one is Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And there's a third book in the series coming soon which we also discuss in the episode. But people might say, you come from money, you can't be broke. Well, we can all be broke at different stages of our life, especially if we're trying to live independently of our family, which everyone should be able to do and have the opportunity to. So there will be times in your life, no matter how much 
money you might have in the family where you personally feel broke because you're trying to be autonomous. So again, words have power, and uh, we do discuss this a little bit in the episode. Erin joined me from New York City to share her personal finance story. Well, my first money memory, if you want to open it up how I traditionally would, in the summer of 1996, a glazed Krispy Kreme donut changed my life. That's my (laughs) kitschy, sort of facetious way to open it all up. But truthfully, my first money-related memory other than candy tax at Halloween, which I didn't quite understand was a money situation until later on in life when I actually was having to start paying taxes, which That's we can parents? track the all tax? the way back to that. Yes, my parents love to levy the candy tax at Halloween. So smart. Okay, well, that, so yeah, we'll we'll uh, skip that one. Uh, yeah, we can put a pin of... in that and we can come back <laughs> to it. But it wasn't actual currency. It was yes. candy. And the first time I remember like really dealing with money My parents did have a rule when I was a kid that if I wanted something, I either had to buy it outright or pay for 50% of it. And this was one of their strategies for, I think, honestly, curbing impulse spending. And also then when we were in a toy shop or whatever, if I wanted something, they're like, well, are you willing to pay 50% of it? And I then had to make an on-the-spot decision about that. Problem is, when you're seven years old, which I was in the summer of 1996, you don't really have a whole lot of earning opportunity. That's right. And I really wanted a Nerf gun super soaker, so those water guns back from the 90s. That was the big thing that I wanted that summer, and I was trying to figure out how to earn the money to get it. And so I pitched my dad this idea, because my mom was having a yard sale, and I said to my dad, well, hey, what if I sold... Krispy Kreme donuts at mom's yard sale. And then I can use that money to go buy my Nerf gun super soaker. Okay. And I also said, hey, dad, I don't have the capital, obviously not using that word, to go purchase (laughs) the donuts. So will you go buy them for me and drive to Krispy Kreme at like 530 in the morning on a Saturday to go get several dozen boxes of glazed Krispy Kreme donuts and bring them back? He said yes. So I set up my little, I had like a Fisher-Price picnic table. I had this purple fanny pack that I strapped on. I was in business. I recruited my then four-year-old sister to help me out a little bit. Long story short, sell out of the donuts, and I'm looking at a pile of like $30 and quarters. By the way, the number of how much money I earn changes almost every single time I tell this story. <laughs> like I don't have a consistent number, but let's say it was $30. And my dad comes over. And I'm proudly staring down at this pile of quarters that I've counted up. And he says, well, how much money did you make, Aaron? And I said, oh, I made $30. I can get two Nerf gun super soakers. And he goes, well, your sister worked for you for a little bit. So let's pay her $4. Uh And then I bought the donuts for you. So you have to pay me back the $6 that it costs for me to buy the donuts. And so really your net profit is $20. And then he did actually take the money from me. That's like the very important part of this story. So I had this very real world experience learning about net profit and business and also feeling like I had been completely swindled out of a bunch of money. Because when you're a kid, $10 is a lot of money. (laughs) Well, and, and in quarters, it would seem like he was probably taking more, right? Oh, yeah, because you're visibly seeing the pile dwindle down. <laughs> That's a fantastic example. Yeah, like uh, just to have because you know, I always I always wonder, like, should we still be using coins to to teach our children, you know, or, or even bills or coins to teach our children about money when maybe they'll be in a digital world, right? I think you I have know. to make it tangible in some way for a little kid because just think about how hard it is for us sometimes to understand the abstract of money. So a little kid, especially if you're just swiping a debit card or a credit card, it just looks like there's this magical card that once you swipe, you just get things. Like there's not a connection there to money and what that means. I had a woman I interviewed once, I was writing an article about how to talk to kids about money and she shared this story I thought was great that her parents took in cash the amount that the family had in the month. And I don't think that they shared the exact number, but there was just a stack of cash. 
And then they started setting aside, like, this is how much goes to the mortgage. This is how much goes to putting gas in the cars. This is how much goes for food. And so it dwindles down into this pile where it says, now, anytime you want something or we want to do something as a family, this is the pile that it comes out of. And that wasn't to do any sort of scarcity mentality. It was supposed to kind of illustrate, listen, I understand that you want things, but the whole family will want things individually. And this is the pot that we have that's left for that. So sometimes when we tell you no, it's because we're thinking about something else that either we as a family want to do or something that somebody else in the family wants or needs. And I thought that was a great way to illustrate to a kid that there isn't this boundless amount of money that exists that we have to budget. And this is where our money goes. That is so great. And, and uh, I think I'm going to do that. Okay, so we so that's your uh, first money memory. We we heard about that, and then was there another time when you uh, started like working to make money for yourself? Most of my stuff was honestly entrepreneurial, partly because okay. when I was ten years old, I moved to Asia and I didn't have a work visa because I was a child. So yeah. there was only so much that I had opportunity to do during the school year because I couldn't just like work at a restaurant or work at a coffee shop like a little high school kids would do. And I also wasn't fluent (laughs) in the native language too, which would have been a problem. Well, how long did you stay? I lived in Asia from 10 to 18. And what part of Asia are we talking about? I was in Kobe, Japan, and then Shanghai, China. Nice. Very different places. Oh, very different. Yes. Yeah. I've been to Japan. I didn't make it all the way. But yeah, I didn't make it all the way to Kobe, but I've been to Osaka. Yeah, yeah, Osaka so, was really close to where I not lived. Not far, right? But the beef, the right? Oh, yeah. Kobe <laughs> beef is the best. And I hate when people say Kobe. That's not right. It's Kobe. Well, you know, I mean, somebody, some basketball player ruined it for everyone. I know. Right? And apparently he's named after the beef, too. So oh, everything's okay. just wrong. And everyone ruined everything. So, it okay. Happens. So 10 years old, you're in Japan. Yes. Is that where you started? Yeah. And, yep. So I was Japan from 10 to 16. Junior and senior years of high school, we had moved to China. And really, opportunities were pretty limited, but I had some quirky things. One, I started a babysitting club in the apartment building that I lived in. It was mostly foreigners that lived in this apartment building. So when I was in, I think it was eighth grade when I started it. The first summer, I really, I was 11, so not quite old enough to be babysitting. Although I think some people are fine with 11 but yeah, my depends. sister and I actually started a pet sitting gig that summer because most of the time the foreigners would go back on home leave to their native countries. And okay. that year my family didn't because we had moved to Japan in February and my parents felt that it was going to be too emotionally volatile for us to then only a few months later go back to America and then have to go all through, back through the process of going back to Japan. So like instead, let's just keep them in Japan for a year and a half before we go back to America for the first time. That's really considerate of them. It was, but it was also very interesting. Talk about culture shock the first time my sister and I came back to the States because I was 10 when I left and I was 12 the first time I came back to America. This was back in the early 2000s. So you don't have social media, you don't have FaceTime, you don't have Skype. You were having to make phone calls and handwrite letters to friends So the connection ability is also very, very different. And that's one thing, too, that is so bizarre to me now for kids who are expats. So, like, you can completely keep your finger on the pulse of your culture and your friends back home where I did not have that opportunity. So, yeah, yeah, entrepreneur-wise, my sister and I then were staying in Japan the whole summer. So we started this pet-sitting gig since so many expats left. We're like, well, we're going to be here so we can watch your animals all summer long. And we did. We made, I think we each made like 800 bucks. It was very good. Like we made good nice. money that summer. Yeah. Watching, notably, one of the cats we watched, his name was Gorbachev, which that is <laughs> when I first learned who Gorbachev was. <laughs> did he look like Gorbachev? Was that He why? was an all white cat with like purple markings on his forehead, course, which is apparently that, that makes sense. Yeah. where he got the name. <laughs> So we did cats and dogs primarily are the animals that we watched that summer. And then about a year and a half later, I started a babysitting club. And really, that's a big way that I made a lot of money was babysitting. And the other fun thing that we did, 
because we were obviously fluent English speakers and we had pretty standard English accents. There's not really something that makes it clear where I grew up or where I'm from. We That's did true. voiceover work. So, really? and I did certain like modeling gigs and acting gigs for commercials and stuff in Japan. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was very interesting. So, okay, we so, uh, made good money sorry. doing that actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I just want to drill down on a couple of things. <laughs> First of all, let's talk briefly about what your parents did and why you moved to uh, Japan and, and China, if, if that's all right. Yes, not military, which is always the first question. My mom actually... Not from Canadians. Yes, (laughs) from Americans, that's the first question. And for those listening, I'm American, if you couldn't already tell by my accent. It's about time. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but I did go to a school called Canadian Academy when I lived in Japan. Oh, that's awesome. Yep, it was started by Canadian missionaries back in like 1906, I think. Oh, Yeah. Well, my... Mom was, at that point, um, a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked in the lithium industry, still does. So his company would mine the raw lithium material that goes into things like cell phone batteries and Prozac. Well, okay, so two very different things, but yep. <laughs> lithium in different uh, uh, ways goes into those things. But lithium ion batteries are a thing that most of us know. Right. And that's when I was a kid, the way I would explain it is, oh, you know, the cell phone or the battery that's in your cell phone, the Mm -hmm. material that's in there is lithium. That's what my dad's company mines. And he didn't work on the mining side. He worked on really the sales side of stuff. So he got sent over to Japan in February of 2000 and started. There was a merger that happened between his company and a Japanese company that he went over and kind of headed that up and was representing the American side. And then we were meant to only live there for three years. The contract kept getting extended. And then end of my sophomore year of high school, so we had been in Japan for five and a half years at this point, they were like, okay, we're bringing you back to America. My parents were actually in North Carolina looking for houses. And my dad got a phone call and they said, press pause, don't buy a house there. We actually think we're going to send you to Shanghai instead. Wow. I was actually thrilled by this development because Shanghai is a heck of a lot closer to Japan than America is. And I knew it was going to be easier to go back and visit my friends. Plus, the school that I then was going to go to in China is part of the same league as the school that I went to in Japan. So we played like basketball, soccer, all that kind of competition would happen against my old school. So I knew I would still be able to see all of my friends. That's awesome perspective, right? Because yeah. like other people would be like, oh, my God, China is so scary. I don't know uh, any of the language. You're like, I just want to be able to play in the sports <laughs> and <laughs> well, see my friends. That's awesome. I would also say at that point, being an expat was what I was most comfortable with. And I knew that going yeah. to SAS meant that it was still that type of life. Different, but still that type of an expat existence. Or if I went back to America... I mean, I would have such bad culture shock just in the summer. I couldn't imagine moving back and having to just like readjust to quote unquote being American again. And I was very nervous about going to an American high school and what that was like and what that meant. And my only touch point was what you saw in TV shows and movies. I was like, oh, this seems so scary. Let's just stay in the nice expat bubble. And I, also, I love, I love it. when I moved to China, there were like three other people who had gone to my school in Japan that then lived in China. So I actually already knew people going in too. It's a very small <laughs> the community. Chances. Yeah. Well, it seems so in, in that, in the kind of uh, the schooling that's there. But I mean, if you go to, if you weren't in school or in that network going from one country to another like that, that's so rare. And, yeah. You know, even in cities, uh, you know, within uh, your state or province, like <laughs> the chance you're going to know somebody is, is low, right? So that you, you just, I like that you have a very different base than than you know mo- everybody else or most people in America say, right? You yeah, started out. Always my fun fact: you would never know yeah. looking at me that I grew up in Asia. I love it. I love it. Did you learn any of the languages while you? Were I there? did. My Mandarin was actually decent when I graduated, but then where I went to college had zero Eastern language programs, so I lost a lot of it in college. But I will say. 
I've been back. I went back to Japan for my 10-year high school reunion, even though that's not technically where I graduated from. But I went back <laughs> in 2000. Wait, what year are we in now? 2017. So summer 2017 was my 10 years. So that was my first time in a while back to Japan. And it's interesting how quickly things start to come back when you're just immersed in it. And then I was just back in China in January of 2019 and same thing. Although I have weird, my brain will cross sometimes where like half the sentence will come out in Japanese and half will come out in Mandarin because it's, I don't know, whatever's happening in my brain, I'll sometimes confuse them. Well, I mean, there's uh, uh, kanji is uh, in hiragana, right? Is uh, Chinese characters? Kanji and hanzu, which is the Chinese form of that, yeah. are similar. Yeah. But yeah. hiragana similar and katakana are just Japanese. Yes. And I, yeah. I, I couldn't read a newspaper because they had the kanji in there, which I never yeah. learned. But I, I learned the 110 syllables of uh, hiragana when I went to Japan for a week. Oh, nice. <laughs> a long time well ago. Done. Enough to be able to type it in to my phone to translate. Because that's the one thing you can't do in character-based languages. Look at something and be right. like, I'll just type it in in letters, right? Yeah. That was well, the challenge for me. But you, you learned all of that stuff. Yeah, so hiragana and katakana, I can still read. It doesn't mean that I know what I'm reading, but I can still read them. That's awesome. Certain other characters that are part of kanji, I can read or I know what they indicate, but I don't necessarily remember them well anymore. It's so hard, right? I mean, it's not, they're not syllables. They're, they are a specific thing, right? Like a, like it's a picture, right? Yeah. And especially when you don't, I mean, they have sounds that are associated with them, yes. yeah. but especially when you don't use that muscle of your brain, it, it atrophies so quickly. But that was one thing that was really hard for me in going from Japan to China in terms of learning the language is Initially, I always wanted to say the the letter or the phonetically oh, yeah. pronounce it in Japanese. Of so course. that was something that kept happening when I would be in Mandarin class and I would say half of the sentence in Mandarin and then the like tail end I might say in Japanese and the, the teacher's always like, no, that's not <laughs> Chinese. Again, a very unique uh, problem to have. Yes. Uh, but probably a problem that a lot of Japanese people have if they're trying to learn Mandarin. Yeah, and also, fun fact, my sister, who was seven when we moved to Japan, so pretty much she was seven to 18 living in Asia, so most of her childhood. She doesn't really remember living in the United States. And apparently, when she started learning Mandarin, the way that she had an accent was as if a Japanese person was learning Mandarin. She had a Japanese accent on her Mandarin. Oh, my God, that is so Weird. great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk about Japan for a while, <laughs> but but the other question I had about your entrepreneurial experiences as a teenager is what was the motivation? What you did you didn't need money at this point, did you? Or part of it is I would say I've always been financially motivated. Whatever it okay. is about my wiring, I've just always liked yeah. earning and having money, and also that. My parents, kind of tying back to that very first story, they weren't big on handing us money. So if I wanted to buy something, yeah, yeah, I had to figure out how to make money. And I was a saver. I liked to hoard it. And I had this, when I was a little kid, I had a little candy tin in my room. And I used to keep a notebook in there that would track how much money I was saving. And at the time, as a very young child, I remember distinctly saving for a red Mitsubishi Eclipse. Like that was the car that I wanted. And then we moved overseas and it's like, this isn't relevant to my life anymore because I can't drive here. So it didn't matter. <laughs> and then it just became about saving money. Yeah. So there, there's always, and, and this is this is common now that I think about it for, for people, it's it's saving for things that you, uh, that the parents won't buy for you or that you know that they uh, require you to have money for. And every every set of parents sets a different set of rules. And so, yeah, your parents communicated early and that kind of crafted where you wanted to go. But a lot of people might have just been okay with uh, what they had and not been motivated. It's something in your in your uh, genetic makeup or personality that made you want to have money. Right? It, it is. And I, if I were to also venture a guess, looking back now, I've always been very independent. And I think that I always saw money as a way to be independent, like to even not necessarily have to ask my parents to buy me something, to be able to just be like, oh, I can do it myself, was always such a satisfying feeling. Yeah, and I think uh, people who don't do that, or, or parents who just hand their kids everything, 
I really I'm the more that I hear about how independence is is making people so strong I really feel that handing your kids anything is counterproductive. Yeah, it can be, uh, except for love and shelter and food. <laughs> I'd say give them yes, the basics, please, and lots of yes, love. Yes, the basics. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, that's not what I meant, of course. But yeah, yes, I'm just that's, Yeah, so yeah, the, the basics, please, as, as hopefully people get. I mean, uh, you know, some people don't, unfortunately. And I guess probably a good time to talk about privilege as well. Mm-hmm. You come from a relatively privileged background. Right? Oh, it's not really. It's very privileged. And I'm, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, I'm very honest about that. And also in my books, I talk about that. It's interesting to me how that comes through to different people. I actually recorded a podcast a couple of months ago about book two and both of the the co-hosts of the podcast made a note about how I did consistently address the fact that I was privileged. I'm like, I don't feel like I deliberately kept banging that drum. It's just more that I think it's important to acknowledge it. And one of the things that I've also, I know the term privilege can kind of make the hair on some people's neck go up a little mm. bit. And one term that I've actually quite liked pivoting to because of that is the idea of advantages that okay. there's just certain yeah. advantages that you have in life. I'm still fine with privilege. But if you're not, yeah. if you're listening to this, and you're like, oh, I hate when people talk about this. Think about advantage. It does make people turn off a little bit. It does. And yeah. I get that. And I do think that there's something to be said about the idea and the term advantage. And I had them in spades, in my opinion, still do. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and as simple as that I am able-bodied, in a uh, heterosexual marriage. I mean, there's just so many things in my yeah. life that aren't difficult. Growing up too, obviously socioeconomics was something that I feel in retrospect, my parents did a very good job of keeping us, I don't want to say isolated from the reality that we were living in, but making sure that we did not turn into privileged, overindulged brats because I grew up around a lot of very, very wealthy individuals. And I talked to my dad about that recently where he said, listen, we loved that you were getting exposed to so much diversity of culture, diversity of religion, diversity of race, but there was one significant lack of diversity and that was socioeconomics. Like your school. Japan. Japan yeah. and China. I mean, the... Both of my high schools cost between like twenty five and thirty thousand USD a year. Like it was like paying for college. That is insane. It is. And a lot of expat kids, the company is paying for that. That's part of the expat package. So what my parents, I mean, I was definitely gonna be shipped off to some public school. My parents were not gonna be paying that kind of money out of their own <laughs> yeah, pockets. <laughs> for sure. But you know, it's an incredibly expensive price tag to even start with. And I would compare it to going to like prep elite prep schools in the United States, just in terms of cost and honestly, caliber of education and the access that you were getting. And to think that I even kind of flippantly earlier in this conversation said, yeah, I mean, we would go play soccer games in Japan or the Philippines or Korea. Like, come on, that's ridiculous. Just that concept. Right. And so growing up in that bubble my parents just did a pretty good job of modeling certain behaviors and by example, showing what they valued. You know, they didn't spend a lot of money on the latest gadgets, the nicest furniture, the newest clothes, the best jewelry, because that's just not what they personally valued. Where we did spend money was travel. We traveled often and it was nice. And that's something that I've carried through in my own adulthood. And I would say the other thing my parents did a good job of is they are quite philanthropic. And that was something that was very consistent and very much demonstrated to us that you need to give back and be charitable. That's a great thing to pass on to your kids. And and probably a good time to mention, uh, which ties into your books, of course, being broke is not the same as being poor. Yeah. And also that you can be, just because your parents have money, doesn't mean that you're going to get any of that money. That's one thing that very early on with the brand, I felt it was important with Broke Millennial to really talk about the fact that broke and poor are two different things. Broke is often thought of as a temporary state of which you can get out of, that people from different socioeconomic classes at different point in their lives can be broke, and that poor is a really different, more of a... It's hard 
to get out of that situation in your life, that it's something that, you know, is, and I I don't want to like gun for anybody at this portion, but I always cringe a little bit when I hear any of the like, oh, just pretend that you're poor or just act like you're poor. And that to me is privilege nonsense. It really kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck start to go up. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what also... For me personally, with Broke Millennial, I was early in my 20s when I came up with it, and I had just wrapped up my first year living in New York, earning $23,000, and felt pretty broke. That is just the phase of life I was in. And I will say, and I acknowledge a lot in the books, in my writing, on my blog, anywhere really that you interact with me, that I did have the distinct advantage of a parental safety net if I needed it. I never called upon it, but I also knew in the back of my mind that if something went sideways, my parents could financially help me out. And that's huge. And the amount of risk that you can take in your life when you know that that's a reality is significant. And it's not to be overlooked when I talk about how my whole career trajectory came to be. A lot of it is tied to the fact that I had that kind of backup. Yeah. And as you said uh, before, you know, you check a lot of the privilege boxes or advantages, as some may say, (laughs) and I do as well. And the most evident one for me is the privilege of when I was going through a gambling addiction to be able to have my parents help me uh, with the big financial uh, consequences at the beginning of it. And if I was in any way poor, I would have just uh, been destitute. Mm -hmm. Like, just the, the contrast between, you know, I was so privileged to have the opportunity to make mistakes. And I think that's a that's a big one, right? Like a lot of people, they can't make mistakes because it's going to crush them. And that's a really good way to put it, the privilege to be able to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think the other part of it, too, there's so many different ways to think about the idea of advantages. Is I mean, there are people whose parents have a lot of money, but maybe their relationship with their parent is so toxic that they couldn't turn to that family dynamic. And, or if they did, it would really mean a relinquishing of oneself and that you would just kind of have to then acquiesce to everything your parents want. I mean, there's so many different ways to think about this. And so to be in an environment where you have not only financial backing, but also that there is some level of emotional support and love and that's not toxic. There's just a lot to think through when it comes to different opportunities that we as individuals may or may not have. Yeah. So we should be looking at our financial situation you know, as a kind of a self-contained thing, right? Not like, oh, if I, you know, if I mess up, I can go there. Well, you know, that could lead you to make different decisions, I'm sure. You know, everybody has different goals, different versions of what they deem as success. I mean, there's just a lot to, to think through in that regard. And I think sometimes we, on a larger level as society, really just look at the overall numbers or the external versions of what success is instead of thinking more that everybody is on their own individual journey and what might be successful for me and in my brain of what success is could be totally different from whomever is listening to this right now. For sure. And yeah. I also love to acknowledge that side of things as well. And to Lord knows this is a message that is so tired at this point, but it's very easy now <laughs> to compare ourselves to everyone else because we have such easy access to compare ourselves to everyone That's else right. at this yeah. point. And it is just so critical that while it's fine to consume that content that you're also keeping in mind that you are on your own journey and you need to measure yourself against you from last year or you from last month, not what XYZ person over here is doing because you don't know their full story. And I talk about this all the time on social media that I'm very aware of what I put out on social media and some of the very cool things that happen in my life professionally. And I do try to check it every once in a while and say, Hey, it looks awesome that I went on this nine city book tour in six weeks and that my book got, you know, a bestseller ranking on Amazon and yada, yada, yada. But here's all the other things that kind of went with that. And in terms of, I basically didn't get to see my husband for five weeks and I'm sort of emotionally breaking down right now. And I've gained 30 pounds through this process. Like 
just all that kind of stuff where not trying to whine, but trying to say it looks really cool because that's what I'm projecting. But just so you know, there's all these other things in the background that aren't as awesome. It's almost more important than anything to acknowledge that stuff. So uh, I'm going to skip over school, sort of. I, I always like to talk about school, but um, uh, we talk about Japan a lot, which, which is my fault because <laughs> I love Japan. <laughs> well, if you want, I can but, do a, a highlight reel. Whatever okay. your, your school questions normally are, I can break them down real quick. Okay, well, uh, parents paid for school? Yes. Co- wait, yes. college or high school? Oh, sorry. Well, so high school, we, we know the company probably, right? Yeah, Pay college, 50%. Same rule. Oh, the 50% rule applied? Yeah, oh, man, applied to have college. We're to talk about school now. Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. So, they, uh, oh, that's a lot, though. Where'd you go? So, hmm, the whole decision was made based on the fact that my parents were paying for 50%. Okay. Yes, so, yeah, yes. my college story ties, it's almost as if all the foundations of childhood came together with the college decision. <laughs> the line that I use is, I gave up going to my dream school in order to live my dream life. And yeah. I say that because if I went to the school that I wanted to go to, where I actually had put the deposit down on, um, really? I would have, yep, I would have had probably about $80,000 worth of student loans coming out. <laughs> yeah. And I was a journalism theater double major, so that wasn't a very realistic amount of money to wow, graduate. Yeah. Like maybe if I was going to be a doctor or something, yeah. but n- even no. Then, even time. then, I would have to be like a neurosurgeon for it to really <laughs> make sense. My dad slid two bills across the table, our dining room table, and one showed how much it was going to cost me to go to school A, and the yeah. other with the school St. Bonaventure University is where I ended up going, and that. I got a bit over 50% in academic scholarship money to go there. Oh, so, wow. So you didn't have to pay because you got the scholarships. Correct. So that That's covered great. my part of it. And I mean, obviously, I had to keep well the done. scholarships all the way through, but I did graduate without taking on any student loans. And then I worked during the school year and then during the summers to make money so that I could be saving up for after graduation because I knew that I wanted to move to New York. Like That was my big dream. Okay, so yeah, then we'll, we can move forward uh, to then. So you started your search for jobs in New York with money saved? Yes, I had saved. My big goal as a freshman was to save $10,000 by the time I graduated oh, college. Yeah, and yeah. I know that sounds like a very high number. It is. Even now, I'm like, 10 grand's a lot of money. And At that time, yeah. Yeah, and the reason... People always ask where that number came from. I honestly don't know. I think that just in my head, that sounded like enough money to move to New York on my own, have you know autonomy and control over my life, and I wouldn't have to ask my parents for money, and I could put a down payment, not like to buy an apartment, to rent, like a first and last month, a security deposit, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I could have security deposit money. At that time, too, I also wasn't sure if I wanted to maybe try to go to some sort of conservatory for acting. So that would kind of open that up as a possibility with that amount of money. So I had, in my freshman year, set that goal and then broke it down to I need to have $2,500 a year set aside. And that felt very manageable. And then in my freshman year didn't really happen all that much. I wasn't really working during the school year because I didn't have a car, so I couldn't really get anywhere. And Mm. because of my family's financial situation, I wasn't um, able to do any work-study type programs. Oh, you didn't qualify. Correct. And then at the end of my freshman year, I applied to be a resident assistant because that wasn't part of the work-study. And I got that job. And you had two options when it came to getting paid. It paid $6,000 a year, and you could either apply that to tuition or you could just have Mm. that as cash in your bank account. But my tuition was already covered between my scholarships and my parents, so I took it as cash in my bank. So that's how I was able to both have money to do fun things in college and save money for when I graduated. And then I also would work during the summers. You get a job then uh, when you move that pays twenty three thousand a year. Well, it wasn't one job; it was three. Oh so, no! Yeah, I was <laughs> I was hustling. When I moved to New York, my first gig was working as a page for the Late Show with David Letterman, and oh, that amazing. was super fun. Really didn't pay great because you well, the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, the opportunity was wonderful, and in terms of just exposure, and uh, also I think of it kind of like a gap year. 
that I got paid yeah, okay. a little bit of money to do because <laughs> sure. it wasn't really a career developer, but it was a really fun job. Well, I have to ask you uh, how you got that job. Well, that job <laughs> came through networking, like many of my nice. jobs. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So who did you know? My senior year of college, I was at one of the career day things that some colleges will do and alumni will come back and sit on panels and a guy, his name is Mike Murray. He was a year older than I was. So he was in his first year out of college and he was a page for the late show with David Letterman. Oh. I'm not sure how he got it. And I saw him sit and talk on this panel and I knew him a little bit because he also had been a resident assistant in college. So I just kind of knew him from that bubble. We weren't in the same team of RAs, but I had met him. And then later, by happenstance, we were at the same house party. And I went up to him and I was like, hey, I would love to hear more about this Letterman gig. And that is how I got my foot in the door because That's I followed it. up with him when I graduated. I'm like, how do I get my resume on your boss's desk? And he was like, I, here's her email. I will endorse you. And then the best part was when I was wrapping up, it's a one-year program when you work at Letterman. Well, when you did, it's not in the air anymore. Mm -hmm. And when I was on my way out the door, I kind of passed it on to somebody else who was graduating from Bonaventure a year behind oh, me. Oh, nice. So then, Pay it forward. Yeah, it was really cool. So that was one of my gigs. I was a barista at a very well-known coffee chain, <laughs> and I would babysit. So those were okay. the three gigs that I would work in order to make ends meet. And this is uh, with a, you got your journalism? Journalism and theater. Yep. So yeah. I would say everything I do now is the perfect combination yes, of those two absolutely. degrees. <laughs> totally. But you were, you didn't find, you couldn't find anything. Well, I mean, I guess the page is sort of a part of that, but. That did work the theater for, muscle. I applied yeah. for a good mix of, I applied for a lot of on-air talent uh, sure. journalism jobs. I think I sent out like 75 reels and resumes and I heard back from like one station in Buffalo. Uh, also keep in mind, this is 2011. So okay. Great Recession yeah. is still just starting to heal up. Job yeah, market's yeah. not awesome. And I, yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to go to New York. So I feel like I also, as many resumes as I sent out, was kind of fingers crossed. Like, oh, I don't really want to do that kind of job. I want to go to New York and try living in New York. So and, I just did it, I guess you could and, say. And the 10000 obviously, you had that security blanket. I had that security blanket moving into New York. The thing that was nice about that, too, is I, what I did was put, used it for the security deposit on my first apartment and then mm -hmm. didn't touch it. I really just lived off of the money that I was earning oh, and kind of pretended okay. that that money didn't exist. So it just kind of defaulted into being my emergency fund. Oh, that's awesome to start off that way. It is. And again, talk about a huge advantage. Like that was just an oh, insane amount of money at 22 years old to just feel like if something went sideways, barring a major medical expense, I was going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, we've already acknowledged privilege, uh, but there are, there are many other people in your exact circumstance who have school paid for, say, who do not do that and they get into a tremendous amount of debt. And at least you didn't do that. <laughs> I think what was interesting, a couple years out, I think this was maybe two years after I had been living in New York, I went to drinks with a woman that I had gone to middle school with. So she came from the same like privileged expat background. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how she was European. I think at the time she was living in Vienna. Her boyfriend lived in Paris. She was talking about how her dad would pay for her to fly every weekend to go visit him. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I made some sort of comment. And she goes, well, what, what do you do now? And I said, oh, well, just wrapped up doing these jobs. Listed off my barista babysitting <laughs> Letterman gig. And I was like, now, and I, at the time I was working in public relations because I really desperately wanted health insurance, a retirement plan, and a stable paycheck hey. after that year. So I went into working in PR for a bit and she goes, oh, so can your parents like not help you? Uh, and yeah. that moment, it, it really kind of crystallized to me that like, well, they could. Yeah. And it made me realize, oh, 
maybe the reason that I did all of this was almost not to be contrarian or to not want to take money. It was my way of showing them like, Hey, I got this. Like you took care of things for a long, long time. And this is my way of demonstrating I'm good. I got it. I can do this by myself. And it does come back to this idea of autonomy that again, I have a healthy relationship with my parents, but being financially independent of them, I am not financially independent as an individual, but of my parents, meant that if I made a choice that perhaps they didn't 100% agree with, they had no recourse to say like, well, then we're going to cut you off. Like that was just something that I really wanted to make sure I had as an adult. And a very simple example was I moved in with my boyfriend before, he's now my husband, but we moved in together before even getting engaged. (laughs) And that ruffled some feathers. Sure. But it was nice to be able to be like, hey, I've been paying my own bills for six years. So, you know, I'm letting you know this is happening. There's no control factor over whether or not this happens. Yeah, that's it's that's everything. And something could happen too, where you stop having access to money or somebody doing things for you. And then you're like uh, this useless person. You don't know how to do anything do dishes <laughs> you know like i don't know i i feel like no matter how much money you have you should not live like you uh um you know are invincible right yeah or that you're entitled to anything i would say yeah, is just the other part so of poisonous. it yeah and you, so you started writing the blog uh, around this time is that what you said Yes, I started it back in 2013 so i had it was january 2013 i'd been living in New York for about a year and a half at that point. I moved here in June 2011. And it started mostly because I was kind of bored at work. I was in my PR Mm. gig at this point. And I just wanted a creative outlet and I missed writing. And I figured that I would be able to be more consistent with it if I had a set topic. And the topic really was inspired by the fact that a lot of my friends, even friends who came from very comfortable means... Mm -hmm. were clearly struggling with their money. And here I was, I had gone from making $23,000 now to $37,500, which I felt so rich at that price tag (laughs) in New York, by the way, just because I had the anchor point of 23. And I was just seeing how many of my friends were really, really struggling with a lot of financial basics. And it confused me because, and this is naive, but what you grow up around is normal. And I grew up in an environment where we talked about money. And Mm, so to see all of these friends who didn't have student loans, didn't have other forms of debt, their parents had, you know, helped them out all the, all the way through to be struggling. I was like, what's happening here? And that inspired me to just start sharing my own stories of how my parents taught me about money, how I handle money. Now broke millennial originally started anonymous and, I've revealed my identity maybe like a year or so in, but it really was always just meant to be a fun place for me to share my own stories, kind of chronicle what was happening in my life. And I never really thought it was going to take off the way it did, but, you know, happy accidents, I guess. Yeah. So what was the turning point of, uh, say, like blog to book? Like, was there there something before that that uh, kind of... There was a fair amount before, just in the sense of I started doing freelance writing and I started to get media hits. And that's really where things started to take off. Is it because I was talking in the media, that's how a literary agent saw me and then went to my site and liked my writing style and asked if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And it kind of all transpired out of that. So I am published with Tartar Perigee, which is a Penguin Random House imprint. And... That alone still sometimes is a pinch me moment. Like, how the heck did this all happen? <laughs> as a journalism student? Uh... That and even as a kid. I mean, I've always loved writing. Sure. I just, if you told 10-year-old Erin that she was going to have a book series about money, I think I just would have laughed. Because that was <laughs> never math, especially anything with numbers. I was like, Psh, okay, like that's not my shtick. And it just kind of is funny that this is what, what ended up transpiring. Yeah, so we have a few minutes left. Uh, let's talk about the books. Sure. <laughs> so the first one is just self-titled, right? Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. 
And the book series does use the name of the blog, but it is not just a repurposing of the blog into a book. It's its own entity. And the first one really is uh, all-encompassing from A to Z how to get your financial life together and starting with also identifying your emotional relationship to money because I think that that's really critical anytime you're trying to build a foundation and moving on from there to talk about, you know, budgeting and credit scores and those kind of, you know, how to pay down debt. But then it moves also into talking about how to talk about money with your partner, how to talk about money with your friends, how to negotiate some basics about buying a house and some basics about investing. And my idea with the book was that each chapter would stand on its own. So you never had to read it cover to cover and you could just pick what was currently relevant to your life and then come back to it later. And that's how it got formulated. And then the inspiration for book two, which is Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money, was really out of book one. I had a very small investing chapter, mostly just focused on retirement because that's how most of us get started. And at the end of that, I listed off a, hey, if you want to learn more about investing, here are some books. And a few people then afterwards started to email and DM and say, hey, I tried to check out those books you recommended, but I'm going to be honest, don't really understand what they're saying. They're a bit too complicated. Do you have anything else? And I realized there's not really a great definitive true beginner's guide for investing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the investing books kind of assume you have at least a base level understanding of either the language or what investing is. A lot of the books that are popular even today were written several decades ago. Things have changed, not just only how you can invest. So robo-advisors, micro-advisors, do-it-yourself access has changed the game a lot. But also the pain points that exist now for millennials, like should I be investing when I have student loans, those questions weren't being answered. So I have a whole chapter in my book answering that question alone. And that really was the idea for this book was to just sort of refresh what's already out there and to back you all the way up to the beginning where the first things that this book focuses on are, are you even ready to be investing in the first place? And I walk you through that before you continue. I like your reframing of saving versus investing. Thank you. Uh, In terms of the the retirement account. I've heard you say it a couple of times at events and and, in podcasts and it makes so much sense. I, I, I never thought that people, like, because we have RRSPs here, right? Mm-hmm. 401k. I never thought that people would be just like, yeah, I'm putting money in my 401k. I'm, it's, it's like I'm saving. Um, they don't realize that they're actually investing in products. And you, you're bringing this kind of into the front uh, of everybody's mind. Yes. And for those of you who are unaware, I've started to shift the language where we, as a culture, tend to say save for retirement, and that's a misnomer. You're investing for retirement. And my big campaign on this is that words have power. And so by saying investing for retirement, you're starting to realize that you are an investor, no matter really where you are in your life, assuming that you're putting money into these retirement vehicles. But more importantly, and forgive my lack of in-depth knowledge of the Canadian retirement system, <laughs> no worries. No but worries. in the United States... It's possible that you can be putting money into an IRA or a 401k, which are our primary retirement vehicles, and it could just be sitting in cash. It could be just in a money market account. Yeah, yeah, same in Canada. And you might not realize that. So you could get all the way to retirement and you never actually invested the money. So while there might be $250,000, which is a nice chunk of change, that's not enough to retire on. And had it been invested, it could be a million plus. So it's making sure that we're starting to shift the language so that people not only understand that they're investors, but that the money that they're putting into these accounts needs to be actually invested, not just sitting in cash. Yeah. Was Did you have a the specific story about somebody who like just did, had no idea? I had heard it when I was doing yes. interviews for the yeah. book. A oh. couple different people had a version of that story. And oh, horrible. yeah, all people that work at big name brokerages where someone calls in to check their account balance at like 65, 68 years old and they pull it up and they're like, oh, yikes. Because at that point too, there's no recourse. You know, if you're 40 and realizing that that <laughs> happened, you got time. But if you're 68 and you wanted to retire next year, now we've got a big problem. It's just sitting in, in a, probably in a bank account or, or, or something that's maybe not even keeping up with inflation. Right. It could be devalued over the years. 
you're us- losing so much money. It's it's I uh, you know I never realized how important it, it would be because uh, everyone's like, oh, you just if you have the a pension or a four hundred one k or RSP, if you just put money in, you're going to be probably okay. But no, not if you don't even think about what it's going into. Right. So there is that just extra little step that happens that mm. I feel is never really a part of the conversation. It's just like, oh, just put money into your 401k or your RSV. Uh, You're fine. It's like, well, yeah. no, you have to pick investments. And <laughs> if we keep saying save, that's like putting cash in a savings account. People are going to still think that they're doing the right thing because the language and everything indicates that they are. Well, and we have a, an added uh, complication that one of our retirement vehicles is called a savings account. Right. Which is a tax-free savings account. Oh, my God. Like, thanks, government. Right. Way to confuse everybody even further. So uh, maybe they'll rename it at some point. But until then, we have to keep having this conversation and talking about it so people don't just say, I want to buy a, a this or I want to buy a that and not knowing what it's going into. So... Yeah. Well, I I think I've uh, I've kept you uh, long enough, but yeah, I I, re- I want to say I really like the idea that your first book is like you know a handbook that you can keep with you and look when you're in the different stages or you have the questions and look back. Then the, the second book, expanding on the first book, is like a, a, a breakout of one of the sections, and you're yes. going to do it again, right? Yep. The third book, also kind of breaking out sections from the first book. The third book is all about relationships and money. But not just romance, because anytime I say relationship, people assume that that's what I mean. (laughs) I'm splitting it up into four sections. And the premise of the book is really how to talk about money. So how to navigate these all important conversations that you have to be having with people in your life. Mm -hmm. But many of us either ignore or we feel too awkward or we don't advocate for ourselves. So the sections are how to talk about it with people at work. So your boss or your coworkers how to talk to your friends, how to talk to your family, and then how to talk to your romantic partner. And same sort of premise where maybe two of those currently aren't relevant, but two of them are, and maybe things will shift as you go throughout your life. So it's just good to always have access to that. At least one of them, or or two, should be relevant. Right. Unlikely you don't have any family or friends. Right. Uh, (laughs) You probably are dealing with at least two of them at any given time. This is great. Uh, I, you know, I really like telling origin stories, right? Um, you know, I, I'm sure you do a lot of, of media just talking about the books, right? Yes. And I, you know, I, of course, you know, I want I want people to know about the books, but I want them to know about you. And so, thanks for sharing all your early stories, and and uh, I had a lot of fun. I did too. And I will say the last note: candy tax, because I alluded to it in the beginning. <laughs> so if you're a parent on Halloween or any other holiday in which your kid gets copious amounts of treats, tax them by taking a percentage of it. And what my parents used to say was, hey, we walked you around so that you were able to go get this, so you owe us a tax on it. However, it it creates opportunities for your kids to wise up in clever ways, because what I started to do after I realized it was going to happen Obviously, on Halloween, there's like premium pieces of candy that you get, and then candies that you're like, ugh. So I started to tuck premium pieces of candy into my costume so that when I dumped oh. my bag out for candy tax, it was just the crappy candy that I didn't care if it got taken. Oh, that's sly. It's mm-hmm. like offshore accounts almost. You know, like... in retrospect, it's like, listen, I always pay what I owe to the IRS, but as a kid with candy, I'm like, you know yes. what? <laughs> let's not let's not connect it too much to real life. Right. Uh, yes. I am uh, very scared pay of your the taxes. IRS. Yeah, they definitely have their their <laughs> almighty power terrifies me. So I always pay them what is owed. <laughs> yes, it's probably the, uh, good advice for everybody, no matter what country you live in. It's true. Thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining me, and I'll see you at FinCon. I'm uh, yeah, a couple of weeks. You're gonna be, you have a presentation, right, of some kind? Yes, I'm doing two talks. Both are on currently on Friday. One is how to basic investing terms and kind of making them yeah, relatable, I guess. Yes. And yes. then the other one is actually talking about the book process and how to get a book published. And it's a panel discussion with people who have done it different ways. So someone self-published, one yeah. with kind of the you know, me with the really big publisher and the agent life and then, you know, just different strategies around marketing and, and how we make it happen. Awesome. Well, I, I will try to make it to at least one of those. I know there's so many going on all at once. and So much happens. 
now I even now I actually know people at FinCon other than like two years ago where it was just the Canadians. Uh, so and but there's going to be a lot of us this year apparently a lot of Canadians. So. Well, good. I look forward to catching yeah. up. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thanks, Aaron. We'll see you then. Thank you. And that was episode 96 with Aaron Lowry. If you like the podcast and want to see me get to episode 100, which is coming up pretty soon, please support the podcast by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. It costs a few bucks a week or more, but if enough people start doing that, then it actually makes a difference to me, even though it's only a few bucks to you. So head over to patreon.com slash bowhumphreys if you're interested. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with founder and CEO of Money After Graduation, Bridget Casey.